Well, times have changed. So says the British evangelist Rico Tice. Gone are the days, he says, when people feel an obligation to attend church. Gone are the days when people go to church just because their parents or grandparents did. I think there's there's perhaps a bit of hyperbole there. People still come to church for many ways. God works in mysterious ways. This this last year I've seen people um, come to church just because it's it's a beautiful building and they wanted to check it out, um, out of curiosity, uh, even for shelter. Um, And one night at 7pm, someone was looking for a kebab, saw the lights on, they ended up here. God works in many ways, but there is something to what... Rico says, isn't there, in a a post-Christian world where church attendance perhaps isn't the norm or expectation, how are people drawn to know Jesus as Lord? How do they find the great news that God can be their father, God's um, people, their brothers and sisters? This is what we want to see, isn't it? Um, I think we all do. We know Jesus is good for this life and the next Christianity is historically true, it's intellectually satisfying, it's emotionally fulfilling, it brings purpose and hope, it is good for everyone, it's the news they need to hear, how do people hear it, how does it happen? Well, I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 has answers and that's where we look today. If you have it open in front of you, that'll be really helpful. Last week we began looking through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we started as we normally do in chapter 1 where Paul is really thankful to God for the Thessalonians. It overflows. He has heard that the gospel has been grasped. He has seen that the lives of the Thessalonians have been transformed. Their acts of love and the gospel has been flowing out of them and become known everywhere. And he knows this because he's heard, and he uses three words to describe it, um, turn, serve, and wait. And I think this is what it is for everyone to be a Christian. To turn from idols, it's in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1. To serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus who judges the living and the dead to return. That's what it is to be a Christian, that's what Paul's heard. So chapter 1 he says, you've got the gospel, praise God, this is how I know how. And verse two, um, chapter 2 carries on from chapter 1, verse 1 says that Paul says his visit had results. And what a result that is, right? I think this is the result that we would love to see in Wollongong. If chapter 1 gives us the result, well, what's the process? How did it all happen? If we just hear it like that, it all sounds a little bit like magic. And salvation is certainly God's work. And yet while we wait, God includes us in his disciple-making plans. And chapter 2 shows us how. It gives us a model of how to wait well, and it does so by describing Paul's time and ministry in um, Thessalonica and his part in God's saving work, what he did when the Thessalonians grasped the gospel. So this is Paul in chapter 2 saying, this is what I was doing when you got the gospel, and then he describes it for us. He lays it all out there, lets us behind the curtain, and when we see, um, we see it's not a small man with a megaphone, but a great God who speaks personally to each of us. So what did Paul do to show this? Um, I think it's captured pretty well in verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Put another way, the Thessalonians believed the gospel message was genuine because it came to them genuinely. 
It's easy to say, harder to do. Let's pray that God will work in us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you will give us a genuine love of Jesus, a genuine love of your word, and a genuine love of others that leads us to share the great news with all and the lives transformed for you. Amen. So what does Paul do? He gives us three broad images to describe um, what he did while there, and they show what it looks like to bring the message of God genuinely. And the first image we get is one of a steward. Um, Looking at verses 3 to 6, the specific word steward isn't there, but the idea, I think, strongly is. And Paul commends his ministry throughout this chapter, but his time in Thessalonica was, was not actually to showcase Paul. That's not the point of this passage. Um, everything about it showed that he was there on behalf of God. In verse 4 we read, he was entrusted with the gospel. He was entrusted by God to do God's work with God's word. The steward knows they are responsible to someone else, accountable to someone else, and we we read that too, and meant to use what they have been given. But what does it mean to steward the gospel? Well, it means the gospel shouldn't just come to us, but it should also go out from us. The, The gospel is wonderful news of salvation. We receive it personally from God. That is all true, but if we don't see ourselves as a steward, then perhaps that's where we will stay, but it is also something we need to pass on. The repeated refrain through chapter 2 is, it is God's. We're not to bury the gospel that God has given us in the ground like the foolish worker, but work to see it multiplied. Um, The gospel was received so well by the Thessalonians because they saw that Paul was not serving himself, but God. But what does is, what is a good steward of the gospel look like? Paul has a list for us. Firstly, verse 2, a good steward um, works even when it's hard. Paul told the gospel even in the face of opposition. And I think that showed the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians that um, he wasn't in it for personal gain. Um, I think one of the great evidences of the resurrection is that the disciples preached it when it would have been far easier not to telling people that Jesus rose from the dead led them to have hard lives with abrupt endings, but it showed it was the truth. How could the Thessalonians trust that what Paul said he really believed? Well, he didn't gain from it, did he? It led to him being chased out of town. But in hardship, people listen. And secondly, as we move along, a good steward doesn't use flattery. Verse 5 The message of the gospel doesn't need to be dressed up in false flattery. We don't change it. Um, We don't change the gospel to make it more palatable. We're not ashamed of some bits and leave them out. Uh, And the reason is, if we're stewards, we understand that um, the message, it isn't ours to change. In verses 4, 8, 9 and 13, Paul says that it is the gospel of God. It's God's message. Um, We don't tell people what they want to hear, but what God gives us to tell. It would be easy to change it. Um, Ditching the sin bit would certainly make it more palatable. Take the all roads lead to heaven approach, but that's not loving, not true. That's not the message we have received. Paul didn't use flattery. He preached Christ crucified and it pleased God and the gospel worked. So we keep reading that a good steward isn't greedy. Verse 5 again. Um, Luke 16, 13, um, Jesus says you cannot have two masters 
you cannot serve both God and money. I mean, verse 9, Paul mentions he works night and day so as not to be a burden. Again, it shows his motives in sharing the gospel were not financial, but for God's glory. The gospel is shown to be genuine when it comes genuinely. He wasn't gaining personally from it. Keep looking through verse 6. A good steward, steward doesn't look for praise from people. Jesus sets the example here, doesn't he? Washing his disciples' feet the night before he was to be killed, setting an example of humility, uh, following his father's will. Paul could have asserted his authority. Um, it was a, a recognised role. He says that, but he didn't. He lived rather for the audience of one, and it worked. And it's also quite liberating, isn't it? And I think if you live for God, then you're freed from the burden of living to please people, which, the other, which is the other alternative. And that's a futile enterprise. And as an aside here, I was, I think, challenged throughout the week by Paul's approach to uh, motivations. He calls on the Thessalonians to look at what they saw of him, what he did, what he said, his conduct and actions. But when it comes to matters of the heart and motivations, he appeals to God, the God who sees hearts and witnesses what we cannot see. And perhaps um, I reflected and thought, can be easy for us to take that role, isn't it, and make ourselves judges of others' intentions and motives. But we need to, to deal with what we see. Praise God when we see others serving and trust that God knows hearts. And the Thessalonians, they trusted the gospel because it came freely, came unchanged, came in hardship, it came without flattery. Steward God's gospel. It works. Um, and it came with love. Verse 8. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So the second image Paul uses is that of family. And it's actually three images. I'm cheating. I'm bunching them into one. Forgive me. Um, he, Paul does something quite remarkable in this chapter, actually. He claims to be like a child. Impressive for an adult. He claims to be like a father. Hard but not impossible. And he claims to be like a mother as well. Um, in verse 7 and then through to, to verse 11 and 12, he claims to be all three of those things, a child, a mother and father. Um, and they, I think they all work to show how Paul loved and committed himself to those he was with. He cared for the Thessalonians deeply in thought and in deed. He was humble like a child. He encouraged, he comforted and urged, he cared. Um, as, a, as a father, I found it interesting the, the words Paul chose in verse 12, um, perhaps not the ones I thought, but gentle relational words like encourage and comfort and urge. He didn't keep his distance. Um, we started with Rico Tice saying people aren't becoming Christians in the same way they used to be. So what's the answer? How are they now? Well, Rico followed it up and he said this. Um, most people who have become Christian have had one person alongside them. Really alongside them. I love the question that Josh put when we were saying hey to each other along those lines. Who have you cared for? Who's cared for you? Um, he, Rico says, just like Paul shows in 1 Thessalonians 2, someone sharing life like a mother, a father, a child. We all just need someone alongside us as God does his work. I think we have a great opportunity for now, uh, for that now, don't we? Um, the census has showed 
Uh, loneliness is on the, the rise. A lot of people are feeling it. I heard a story during the week of um, a lady who put an ad on Facebook. I don't think it was an ad, it was just a post, um, saying, hey, I'm, I'm looking for friends. I'm going down. I'll make a barbecue. Whoever's welcome, come. And heaps of people came. It was inundated with people going, yeah, friend would be good. We all need a connection, don't we? Um, church is a great place for this. Connect with people, with God. Um, and I think in my preparation this week, um, it's probably, this is a bit that niggled me. I find it probably personally challenging. It's, it's, I find it quite easy to keep people at arm's length. But it's hard to do that and expect I'll see how the gospel has changed all of life to show that you care and love deeply. But I also think this will play out differently for each of us in our different lives and contexts. You don't need to be a certain age or stage to do this. This is not about your living situation or your personality type. It's about love and care. It's about bringing the gospel genuinely. Um, They knew the gospel was genuine because it came to them genuinely. Who can you get alongside for the gospel? Who can you genuinely invest in and in doing so show that your faith is real? That consistency, I think, is um, really attractive and where it's most seen, actually, is not in us. It's in Jesus. I recently heard the testimony of a man who, upon reading the gospel, was struck by the correlation between Jesus' lips and his life. You saw he walked the talk all the way to the cross where he gave his life for his enemies. And as he looked at Jesus, the men saw for the first time his own average everyday hypocrisy. He had lamented world hunger but was living like a glutton. He talked about peace but didn't lay aside the weapons of sarcasm or judgment. And he saw that Jesus was no hypocrite. Another man, Take Matutso, was someone who led the Japanese assault on Pearl Harbor. But in the following years during the war, he became deeply disillusioned with the glaring difference between ideology and action, between what we wanted to happen and how we did it, between results and methods. He couldn't reconcile them. He saw no solution until he opened the book of Luke. And he saw what Jesus' love led him to do. Not to die fighting his enemies, but to give up his life for them. And he broke down when he heard Jesus' words, Forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. A consistent life of love and care, delighting to share our life and the gospel, and showing Jesus the ultimate example. And the third image we get is one of a herald. We had a herald... Christ's victory. Um, I think Paul is at his most superhuman or super Christian this chapter. A lot of times he boasts of weakness, but this is where he seems to be very impressive when he sets out what his life was like. Is he just setting an unattainable example for us to struggle behind? Well, I don't think he is. It's all about Paul. Um, The section starts and ends with the word of God. Verse 13, that's what he comes back to. He says, When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as human word, but as it actually is the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Um, If you've been listening to this and you're thinking, Come on, um, I need to be a good steward, a father, a mother, 
a child, a herald, I need to do all these things. I think the message is not uh, do more, be better. Paul's trust isn't in himself, it's in the gospel. He trusts that God's word works. And if you feel burdened, remember that message, um, the one you have to share, it's a message of hope and victory. Um, This this might be a dated reference to this congregation, I'm not sure, but um, when you watch the movie Titanic, dated? No, relevant still. I'm on the cutting edge of pop culture. Uh, no, no, well, anyway, when you watch Titanic, um, you kind of get this foreboding um, contrast. There's a juxtaposition the whole way through between the luxury of the ship, the opulence, the comfort, you know, the celebration, and, and what you know is about to happen, the tragedy and disaster. Um, you know what's going to happen as you watch the movie. I'll assume most of you do. The movie came after the event. Uh, and... <laughs> Sorry if that was inappropriate. Um, I, th- I think perhaps sometimes sharing the gospel, it can feel a bit like you're, you're giving bad news, like you're running around the Titanic and you know, people, people in Wollongong, they're, they're having fun, they're, they're this, it's comfortable, it's exciting and you've got bad news. But really, you know where that ship is headed and you're telling people where the lifeboat is. The message is one of hope. It's the one they need to hear even when it doesn't feel like it. And the message is also one of victory. Um, Glenn Scrivener uses the story of David and Goliath to show us what it is to share the gospel. He says this, You are not a drill sergeant instructing others how to defeat Goliath. You are a war correspondent heralding the news of David's victory. We are not out there giving people self-help tips and you can do this or do that. We are showing them Christ's great victory. Um, Glenn goes on, You survey the scene and it's bad, an evil superhuman opponent. Fear and despondency are in the ranks and you just can't win. But then you announce from among you the anointed king, your champion. He's small and he looks so weak, but what courage he has as he fights for us. What confidence he has in the name of the Lord. And look, people, look, even through his weakness, He defeats the enemy, killing him with his own weapon. That's the story of Jesus and us, isn't it? That's the story of the world. Um, When all is lost, when sin has its hooks deep in us, Jesus, through his death and resurrection, defeats death. This is good news of victory. I think for us, um, I reflect again on how good church is, because church, I think, is where we remind ourselves of this good news. It's, it's the pep-up we need, right? It's where we remember we've won, our champion has triumphed, we sing songs of praise in song, and then we go out confident into the week with it clear in our minds that the enemy is decapitated. We have victory in Jesus. We go out fearing God, not man, freed from the burdens of flattery and greed. So have confidence. Have confidence, not in yourself, but that if you open the Bible, God will speak. That if you open the Bible, God will walk off the pages and into lives. We need to know where the power is, and the power is in the Bible. Glenn Scrivener, he finishes that section saying, we don't need more combat skills, we need more Christ. Do not take your eyes off your champion. 
So we started saying, what's the method? Well, it's what it's always been, isn't it? Speak of Jesus. Open the word of God. Nothing has changed. This has worked. It is working and it continues to work. Keep looking to Jesus and let love lead you to delight to share the gospel in your lives as well.